actually, <laughs> that thought did occur to me that uh, by keeping um, it a closely guarded secret, I thought I could get all of you people here and then do an illustrated talk on buses that I have loved. <laughs> but fun though that would have been. I'm not doing that. Just to say, as, as you know, the, the reason for doing this is that um, because we generally, or always, in fact, preach through uh, expositionally, th- through books and so on, that there will be always topics that don't naturally occur in the, the course of maybe a year, two years, or whatever. Um, and uh, so we thought to, to have these uh, occasional gatherings on a Sunday evening, um, we could handle some of the things that haven't uh, arisen and maybe won't arise for some time. Um, and I'd be very interested, incidentally, if people uh, do want to, uh, in coming weeks, just suggest topics you think it would be good if we could look at that sometime. Um, but uh, we've got some things in mind, but uh, please do feel free to uh, contribute into that. With regard to the questions for tonight, um, obviously it would be helpful if... Uh, you first of all see what the subject is and then listen for a bit before coming up with questions. Um, but, uh, and the questions, obviously, our intention is that they should be related to what we're talking about. Um, so, uh, you know, where did Cain get his wife and so on and did Adam have a belly button? We will not be handling those. Um, but uh, anything that relates to what we're going to look at, um, if you feel something's been raised that you haven't quite understood or... Um, what about this, what about that, do feel free to text those to Mark and uh, he will then feed those through at the end. So the question then is, what is tonight's topic? When I announce what it is, you might realize why one reason why we wanted to keep it uh, close to our chest um, because maybe, who knows, I don't know whether people thought, oh, I don't know about that. But what we're going to look at is the subject of, I said this morning, it's relevant to everyone. I will get round to it eventually. So this morning is relevant to everyone and there is no subject more relevant to everyone because we're going to look at the subject of death. We will all face it. <laughs> unless, Mary pointed out before we came out, unless of course Jesus comes back in our lifetime, then the subject is irrelevant. Um, So I trust then that our subject tonight will be irrelevant to all of us, but who knows. So in looking at this subject, we're not looking at the second coming. We're not looking at the end of everything. We're looking at our end, the one great certainty of our existence, that life as we know it now will not go on forever. Let me read uh, one comment that I read in a book uh, about this subject. And uh, the writer said this, Death is the greatest of humankind's enemies, a relentless grim reaper that shows no respect for age or wealth. It robs parents of a precious child, leaving them to mourn their loss for the rest of their lives. It deprives wives and children of their breadwinner and protector leaving them vulnerable in a hostile world. It takes away an aging spouse, leaving a grey-haired senior citizen without a lifelong companion and closest friend. Sometimes it arrives suddenly and unannounced. At other times it approaches slowly as if stalking or 
taunting its helpless victim. Sometimes it hauls away its victims en masse. On other occasions, it targets individuals. It uses a variety of methods and weapons, but only rarely does it capture its prey without inflicting pain and terror. Beauty, power, and wealth can usually overcome any obstacle, but in death, they meet their match. Then the Bible says, in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 1 through to 9, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, where, when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they're few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred, then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well and the dust returns to the ground it came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Two not very cheery quotes. We'll get those out of the way right at the start. But the preacher there writing in Ecclesiastes is painting a picture of gradual decline, disintegration leading to death. And some have commented that when it speaks about the keepers of the house trembling and strong men stoop when the grinders cease because they're few and uh, saying that that's actually a picture of physical deterioration, which I think is perhaps a bit fanciful, but they say when the grinders cease because they're few, it's when your teeth fall out. I don't think that's actually what it's talking about. But nonetheless, age will overtake us all, uh, and finally, all life's achievements will be forgotten, hence meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Death, for most people, I guess, is a bit of a taboo subject. It's not something we like to think about or talk about, although, of course, it confronts us all. We, although it confronts us, we perhaps close our minds to the fact it faces us individually. Basically, I think people don't really know how to handle it, don't know how to think about it don't know what to say to someone, for example, who's recently been bereaved. And often, because people don't know what to say, they just kind of avoid them because of the awkwardness of, what do you say? And hence, people who have been bereaved can then be intensely lo lonely because people actually uh, feel awkward and embarrassed around them and avoid them. The best course then for most people seems to just be ignore the whole thing. And I guess maybe to ignore it is better than to have a morbid interest in the subject. But some sort of approach to death, some sort of attitude, belief about death is important. 
but what kind of response? Generally in society, people are muddled, and in just recent years, of course, we've seen this strange phenomenon of uh, flowers by the roadside, and then maybe there's been some tragic crime, and all the flowers that are there, and teddy bears, and messages to the departed. You think, what are people thinking here? Presumably, people are thinking there is some continuity, there is some kind of afterlife, but why the teddy bears and why the messages? Do they really think that the departed appreciate these gestures? Are they around somewhere to, uh, to, to see what's happening and to, to watch their loved ones? People don't know, but they're confused, but they feel there's got to be something. So what do we think about this subject? Well, let's obviously look at the Bible. That's where everything comes from. And the whole story begins, of course, in Genesis. Adam and Eve are created out of the dust, or Adam is created out of the dust. God breathes into Adam the spirit of life. Eve is then fashioned out of Adam's side, and there they are, a man and a woman, with the the spirit of life breathed into them in a beautiful environment, no inhibitions between each other and between them and God. That's life. But in the midst of that, in, John, in Genesis 2, verse 17, or 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. First reference to death, one wonders if Adam and Eve actually understood what that word meant. It wasn't obviously part of their experience. They hadn't encountered death. But when you eat of it, God said, you will surely die. They they have the breath of life, the spirit of life breathed into them. They're enjoying life. But here's um, a warning. Don't touch the, uh, don't eat from, rather, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course, they disobeyed, and after Adam's disobedience, then in chapter 3, verse 19, God says to Adam, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the warning, eat from that tree, you will surely die. They eat from it, and now God says, You know, the the threat was there, it's going to happen, you will return to the ground. You were made out of dust, you will return to dust. And so by chapter 5 and verse 5, we read, Altogether, Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Now we can perhaps think 930 years, and we stop and think about that one, but actually the more significant statement is the latter one. And then he died died. That had been one of the sentence that was pronounced and tragically that was what happened. He, he had life breathed into him but it was forfeited and then death becomes his experience. He died. So death is an intruder in God's good creation. It was surely never intended 
Obviously, it's speculative to, uh, to even discuss what would have happened to Adam and Eve had they not sinned. Would they still be alive now? And, uh, we don't know any of those things, so please don't text those questions. <laughs> I'll, I'll head off all difficulties as I go through. <laughs> but what we do know is that death comes as an intruder. It's the punishment for sin. And there should never have been sin. But death now becomes part of human experience. It's the outcome against human rebellion against God. And that outcome then passes to everyone who is in Adam. So Paul says in Romans 5, when he's comparing and contrasting the first man with the second man, Adam and Christ, these two great heads in the human race, he says that by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, death reigned through that one man. By that one man's sin, in disobeying God, he moves into the category of sin and death. And as he moves into that category, he takes all of humanity into that category where in Adam, and therefore death, reigns through that one man. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, in Adam all die. So that's the outcome of Adam's sin. It's where the whole story begins. But it's not just the outcome, of course, of Adam's sin. It's also the outcome of Satan's devious scheming because he's the one who intrudes into the garden, this subtle enemy of God, more crafty than any other wild animal, and he's the one who introduces temptation and therefore is actually responsible for death becoming part of human experience. So it's the outcome of Satan's devious and destructive activity. And hence death continues to be a kind of key part of Satan's tool bag. It's, it's, part, it's, it's associated with things that are dark and things that are an enemy, things, therefore, that we try to ignore. He's the one, the Bible says in Hebrews 2.14, the devil is the one who holds the power of death. It's associated with him. And hence, associated with death are all kinds of negative concepts. Shock, bereavement, loss, grief. These are all negative, distressing things. They come out of darkness. They come from the devil. Pain, fear, killing, violence, murder, suicide, all of these things, desperately negative. All an intrusion in God's beautiful creation. Where God saw it all and said, it's good. All spoilt through Satan's devices introducing death. And so, for us, death is both a natural and an unnatural event. It's natural because everyone will die. So death is part of life. It's natural. But it's also unnatural because it was never God's intention for us. It is, as I've said, an intruder. It shouldn't be there. So the whole human story begins there in Genesis and begins with this reference to the introduction of death. And then, of course, we turn to the New Testament and the whole gospel story also begins 
with a death. The human, human history begins with the entrance of death. The gospel story begins also with a death, the death of Christ. Death is the unavoidable, inevitable wages of sin. Paul, that's how Paul describes it in Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. And so our Savior died. And his subsequent resurrection then represents a major turning point in human history. Everything changed when that stone was rolled away, when the grave clothes are left in their place, but Jesus isn't there. At that point, totally undeserved possibilities are opened up because Jesus defeated death. One of the great Puritans by the name of John Owen spoke of the death of death in the death of Christ. And that's what it is. The death of death in the death of Christ. Jesus conquered death not by being kind of temporally raised from the dead as if he's snatched out of death to live a few more years and then subsequently die again as Lazarus did. But Jesus was not raised by someone calling him out of the grave. He rose. And he rose conquering death to never die again. Romans 6 verse 9 says, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Death appeared to master him. He hangs on the cross and he commits his spirit to his heavenly father and expires. Death seems to have won. This universal enemy seems to have conquered the very Son of God. On the third day, he's alive. The resurrection then transforms the apparent tragedy of the cross into a remarkable victory. The victim becomes the victor. And so the hymn captures that well. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering Son. Endless is the victory thou or death has won. This last week on Thursday and Friday, uh, we had leadership training here, and I happened to be teaching, and we were looking at doctrine of salvation, and I made the comment there that one of the great problems um, with Christian doctrine is that things tend to be viewed systematically. We have systematic theology. And so everything is put in neat categories. And if you look in your average systematic theology at the, the, the section on the death of Christ, there is nothing about victory. Because victory belongs in a totally different doctrine, the doctrine of Christ. And there people look at resurrection. So looking at, at what the work of Christ on the cross, it tends to be in terms of suffering, substitution, sacrifice, all of which is true. But it's also victory. And it didn't take long for the early church to realize that. On, on the day of Pentecost, just shortly after the cross, you have Peter saying, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Got a sense of, he's won. He has defeated death. Death is humanity's universal enemy, 
and it met its match in Christ. He beat it. And so things will never be the same again. When we believe in Jesus Christ as our Saviour, we come into union with him. Union with his death and resurrection. So we had a baptism this morning indicating union with Christ in his death and resurrection. We, we died with him. Sin is dealt with. The penalty is dealt with once for all in the death of Christ. Where he died, we died. He rose again. We rise again to have everlasting life. We have come passed from death into life. Jesus said, John 11, 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I'm the resurrection and the life. We are in life. So, I began by saying our subject tonight is death and it is relevant to all of us. Actually, theologically, it's not. Because we have life. We've passed from death into life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, whoever lives and believes in me, will never die. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about the resurrection of Christ, says how fundamental that resurrection is to all that we believe. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 55, he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death, he says, has been swallowed up in victory. Death is no longer king. Death no longer reigns. Jesus reigns, and in him is life. He's the resurrection and the life. And he has pulled the sting of death. The sting of death is sin, and he's dealt with it. So there is nothing further to fear in death. And indeed, we have life. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen when we reach the point of what we typically call death? Well, obviously, our physical body will grow old, and gradually fail, though actually our expectation is not for decline. We don't start to close down when we hit 30. I say that because uh, we, we knew a girl once in her 20s, 28, 29, and then when age 30, her 30th birthday, she was profoundly depressed. It's like she was over the hill now. This was it. She almost climbed into the box and pulled the lid down. You know, it's all over. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's certainly not 30. There are other people, they're a bit, uh, they're, they're not so um, uh, introspective and fearful. It's age 40. 
or 5-0, the big 5-0. And so it goes on. It's like people are living in fearful expectation of something. We don't live in fearful expectation of anything. So although, of course, we will age and our body will gradually fail, but we don't have to reach out to grasp that. We believe what the Bible says. And the Bible says, He gives strength to the weary. In fact, we've been singing it. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Those who hope in the Lord changes everything. Changes our expectations. Changes how we view each successive birthday. Had one just the other week. And it doesn't bother me at all. Because I hope in the Lord. And the scripture says, Deuteronomy 33:25, your strength will equal your days. That's what we believe. We're not reaching out to grasp decline. Uh, some years ago now, I haven't seen him for, for some time, but we, we had a close friend who happened to be younger than me just by a few years. This was some years ago. He was already moved to a bungalow because getting older and, you know, stairs. And uh, then he was a keen gardener, but he had then paved over most of the garden because, you know, we had to cope with the lawn and dig. You think, you're in your 50s. And then uh, removed all the guttering and had UPVC because painting, you're getting up on the ladder, getting old. I think some people reach out to welcome old age before it's due. You know, the scripture says, your strength will equal your days. And Proverbs 17.22 says, a cheerful heart is good medicine. If, you, if you're believing in God and you're rejoicing in Him and you're hoping in Him, yes, your body will age, but not prematurely. We're hoping in God. We're believing in God. And our youth is renewed as the eagles. That's what we're believing for. They were saw, saw on wings like eagles and we, we trust for uh, youth to be renewed. That's the promise of God. But... We know that our time here isn't going to last forever. And we're certainly not interested in kind of artificially prolonging our days. We're not interested in setting up some deal to be deep frozen in the event of maybe one day being thawed out. And you know, We're not interested in that stuff. We're not interested in the kind of makeovers where you get your face stretched to a perpetual look of surprise. We're not interested in any of that. Because we know that sooner or later we're going to go to be with the Lord and that is not something that we fear. The fear of death has been removed in Hebrews, Hebrews 2 and verse 15. Hebrews 2 and verse 15, the, or verses 14 and 15, the writer says, Since the children have flesh and blood, 
he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what Jesus has done. By his death, he's destroyed the one who holds the power of death and releases everyone who was held in slavery by the fear of death. And basically, that is everyone outside of Christ, which is why people don't talk about death, why people try to ignore it, why people try to stave off that evil day as they see it. No, he's dealt with the fear of death. It's no longer there. As far as the New Testament is concerned, what we're heading towards is not death, but a time when, the phrase in the New Testament is, we fall asleep. And you know, that's a pleasant experience. Some experience it most Sunday mornings. <laughs> Maybe so, I can't see really. No, I think we're okay. But no, seriously, falling asleep is just so simple, so relaxing, so peaceful. And that's the expression that the New Testament uses for what happens to believers. Even, well, Acts 7, which is really quite remarkable. Acts 7, the story of Stephen. And you know what happened to him. He has been preaching and so incensed those who are listening that they lynch him. They drag him out of the city and begin to stone him. So there you have this godly man having stones thrown at him. And it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Fell asleep. A peaceful death with rocks being thrown at him. That's how he died. No, he fell asleep. And he says, Lord, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He falls asleep. He's, he's dealt with it. And prays forgiveness. We don't die. We sleep. 1 Thessalonians 4, also when Paul is addressing the, the rather troubled believers uh, there in Thessalonica because uh, they had expected, like we guess, this is the reason they had expected that Jesus would return in their lifetime and that isn't happening. Indeed, some of the first generation uh, have died and they're thinking, what's this all about? And he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. There's that expression again, falling asleep. See, the word death conveys something horribly final. It's over. Death. Falling asleep, on the other hand, implies waking up. If you fall asleep, you're going to wake up. Death is final. Falling asleep isn't. And so, in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 9 and verse uh, 24, have the story of uh, Jesus coming to the home of a ruler in Israel whose uh, daughter has died. 
And uh, the ruler says to Jesus, come, put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. And uh, when Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. Now, why does Jesus say that? Well, because he's going to wake her up. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took the girl by the hand, and she got up. She was only sleeping. As far as they were concerned, dead. But no, she's going to wake again, so it's only sleep. And that's how it would be for us. And the thought of what we will wake up to makes us eager to fall asleep. Or should. A bit like a young child who wants to get to bed early on Christmas Eve because Christmas Day will come sooner. The thought of what they're going to wake up to makes them eager to go to sleep. And we are going to wake up to be with the Lord. We will fall asleep, but when we wake, how different it's all going to be. Well, for Stephen, he falls asleep in those gruesome and horrible circumstances. But he woke up. It's with the Lord. And the thought of what is ahead, the thought of that to which we wake up, removes the sting of death the horror of death, the fear of death. No, 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 no. This is good news. This is not something to stave off as long as possible. Indeed, we could justifiably be eager for that day to come. And that's how the New Testament seems to speak about it. There's no sense of fear and incidentally no sense either of any kind of intermediate state but falling asleep and waking up in God's presence and so in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 6 to 8 Paul says we know that as long as we are at home in the body we're away from the Lord we live by faith not by sight we're confident I say and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul is not saying, you know, sort of dreading that day and hoping it's as far away as possible. No, he's aware of what he's going to wake up to. And he says, I'd, I'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So no intermediate state, away from the body, at home with the Lord. Now, of course, I carefully said at the outset, we're not talking tonight about the second coming. We're not talking about, so no questions about, yeah, but what about uh, uh, the fact that we've got to wait for Jesus to return before the dead will rise? That belongs, in, I, I believe in systematic theology when it suits me. And that belongs in the last things. And we're talking about our personal experience, okay? And our personal experience, the scripture says, away from the body, at home with the Lord. And that will be the personal experience of everyone who falls asleep believing in Jesus Christ. And for them, death is not a tragedy. Death is the arrival of everything they've been living for. 
death is the realization of all their hopes to see him, to be with him. But what about those they leave behind? They're the ones that Paul is addressing, isn't he, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage that we read. And in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, Paul says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, some have misunderstood that as if what Paul is saying is that Christians should not grieve or Christians shouldn't express grief at the passing of someone that they love. John Stott very wisely says, Mourning is natural, even for a while, emotionally necessary. It would be very unnatural, indeed inhuman, not to mourn when we lose somebody near and dear to us. So, of course, we will grieve. There have been times, particularly since we had grandchildren, when Mary has gone to maybe spend a couple of days with them, maybe helping, uh, like when they were born, she was there to help, and uh, just going for, at the most, a week. And so I will see her off on the coach. And she gets on, and we're sort of talking, you know, dealing with luggage, she gets on. Then's that moment when the coach door closes, begins to move off, and I wave, and she waves. She's going away for just a few days, and I feel emotion. Just, oh. And you go home, and it's kind of empty. Because she's so noisy normally. <laughs> it's kind of quiet and empty. And the mealtime comes, and I've got to cook it. <laughs> Gosh, I miss her. <laughs> if I feel like that, for just a few days parting, when someone's gone forever, of course we will feel emotion. And of course we will feel grief. And if we didn't, as John Stott says, it would be inhuman. So what is Paul saying there? He's not saying you mustn't grieve, but he's saying not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We don't grieve in the same way as others. Of course we grieve. And the way other people grieve is they are people who have no hope. Their grief is a hopeless grief. That's desperate. Absolutely desperate. Hopeless grief. We grieve, but it's a hope-filled grief. We know we will see them again. We know. So it's not despair, but of course it's real grief. And in the midst of our grief, there's the unshakable conviction of Christ's victory. His victory over death and the certainty that the one that we've lost is enjoying now what we have to wait for. So, yes, there's grief, heartbreak, ill, faith hope, joy, maybe doesn't show instantly, but yeah, we know they're forever with the Lord. 
So, yes, we will all doubtless go through times when people who are close to us, they die, they go. And yes, there will be grief. And if we try to suppress it, you know, some people are so super spiritual, they feel they mustn't show it, they've got to rejoice. No, it's natural. It's inhuman not to. But it's not hopeless. So how do we relate with people who are grieving? Obviously, as I said at the outset, we can feel so embarrassed, we unsure, we don't know what to say, so maybe we even avoid them. For, because we don't know what to say, well, avoiding them is really not an option. Nor is it helpful to dish out platitudes like telling them that time is the great healer. I was once with a guy who was grieving because his wife, on whom he really depended, his wife had just passed away, he's a believer, and he's, he's absolutely desolate. And I was there with him uh, when one of his friends from the local church called in and uh, greeted him with, just by saying, John, in everything God's working for the good of those who love him. him. You think, oh, yeah, that is true, but so unhelpful at this point. In everything God's working for good. In other words, come on, pull yourself together. Let's rejo- The guy's lost his wife. So what do we do? Well, the Bible tells us what to do. Romans 12, verse 15. Mourn with those who mourn. If it's natural to express grief and to come alongside someone to put your arm around them, don't say anything. Just empathize. Understand what they're going through. The need to say something wise, I think, needs to be stifled at times like that. The need to say something impressive. Forget it. Just mourn with them. They know you understand. You're right there with them. You're not thinking they ought to be handling it better or whatever. No, you understand and you're with them. We've got a saviour, the Bible tells us, who sympathises with our weakness. To sympathise means to feel along with. He sympathises with our weakness. We want to be like him. So let's be like him when we're with people who have lost someone. But the New Testament has a lot to say about hope. So many references to our hope. And the the way it's referred to strikes me as being a bit like Moses as he reaches the end of his days. And at great age, his eye hadn't dimmed. And he can still climb a mountain. So he is someone who hoped in the Lord and God renewed his strength. But nonetheless, the time comes for him to go. And he he climbs to the top of Mount Nebo. And there he sees the promised land that he's believed for and lived for. He sees it spread out before him. And it seems to me as as if New Testament saints had caught a glimpse, as Moses did, they've caught a glimpse of our promised land. The place that God has promised to us, where Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be also. The hope is, we've seen a glimpse of it. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment on what is to head. We've got a glimpse of it. We've seen it. And so they live their lives motivated, excited by the expectation of what was ahead. There's an old hymn by Isaac Watts. He obviously made that connection with the story of Moses when he said, There's a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. 
infinite day excludes the night, and pleasures banish pain. Could we but climb where Moses stood, and view the landscape o'er, not Jordan's stream, nor death's cold flood could fright us from the shore. A land of pure delight, where saints immortal reign. I think the story behind that hymn is that Isaac Watts lived in Hampshire, and he was on the south coast, and he looked across the Solent and saw the Isle of Wight. And the sight of the Isle of Wight made him think of a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. Kind of takes something out of it to think of that if you've ever been to the Isle of Wight. But anyway, it's that, that sense of a distant shore. And he thinks, that's, that's where we are. We're kind of looking across the water and there's heaven. And we're going to be there one day. And there's that kind of eagerness we want to be there. I remember once I was, years ago now, I was preaching uh, away from home, some distance away, and I was driving after the, it was a Sunday evening meeting, had a long drive home, uh, and uh, it was late, the ro- roads were deserted, and uh, I was driving through Sussex and Surrey and back home to where we were in Hampshire. And uh, there was a late night program on Radio 4 about ancient hymns, and actually uh, they started speaking about that hymn, and that's where I got that story about the Isle of Wight. But they're talking about this land of pure delight where saints immortal reign. And as they spoke about it, it's the most unusual program for BBC, but they're speaking about it, kind of the excitement of it got me, and also a terrible thought just hit me. As I'm driving quite quickly around these country roads, I thought, just one slip right now, I'd hit a tree, and I'd see what they're talking about. I'd be there instantly, but I resisted the temptation. But absent from the body, present with the Lord. And you think, what's that going to be? What will we see when we wake up? Well, we're not motivated by a landscape. We're motivated by the thought of being at home with the Lord. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You've not seen him, but you love him. And the fact is, we will see his face. Revelation 22.4 says, we will see his face. Again, I remember some years ago being in a, uh, a big meeting, and um, uh, they had a, a guy singing, and it was a, um, a bit of an old-fashioned sort of gospel song, that the first line was, we will see his lovely face. And uh, but the thing that hit me was, the singer was blind. And he's singing, we will see his lovely face. I thought, yes, he will. Not ever seen anything. But when he wakes up, he'll see the Lord. It may be the first sight he'll ever see, the face of Jesus. What a thought. What a thought. We're going to see him. We worship him here. We long for his presence. We're going to see him. We'll wake up and be with him. Stephen, of course, had a down payment on that. As they're lobbing the rocks at him, he sees Jesus standing. The Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He saw him standing like he's there to welcome him. He sees him. And hence, that wonderful sight, even though the rocks are hitting him, extinguishing his life, yet that sight made him just fall asleep. 
to wake up in the presence of the one that he could see. So we don't fear death. The circumstances surrounding death can be terrible. Of course that is true. But there's a hope. It's a hope of being with the Lord. And it's that hope that has enabled Christians down through the ages, from the time of Stephen until today, the atrocities of you. We were praying about it the other week in the prayer meeting, the atrocities against Christians in Orissa today. Those things still happen. Christians are still suffering for their faith and being slaughtered. But that hope has enabled people to press through. I'm sure I've quoted this before, but because it's a story that just impresses me, about Polycarp, who was Bishop of Smyrna in the early 2nd century. He was age 86. As a young man, he had known the Apostle John, but he's now 86, and he's arrested and invited to sacrifice to Caesar and curse Christ. He refused, knowing full well what the alternative was. And the alternative was to be lashed to a stake and burned. And he, when he's asked to sacrifice to Caesar and curse Christ, this old man of 86 says, I have served Christ for 86 years and he's never done me any wrong. How then? Can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they rushed at him, tied him to a stake, lit the fire and watched him die. He prayed for them. And in those times of intense persecution, this cynical comment was made. I'm sure you've heard it. These Christians die well. Yeah, they do. Because there's a hope. They've seen a distant land. They want to be there. They want to be forever with the Lord. So yes, the circumstances surrounding death can be terrible, or they might not be. But just as life is lived with God, so we fall asleep with God. The scripture says in in Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. We can claim that promise. He'll be with he was with Stephen, enabling him to die well. He was with Polycarp, enabling him to die well. And of course, Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. You are with me. The promise, I will be with you. And if God is with us in our life, how much more will he be with us at that point? When we leave this life behind to go to be with him forever. So Paul says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. 2 Corinthians 4. We groan, longing. Paul longs to be with the Lord. He serves the Lord. He lives for him. 
and he knows he's going to be with him. And that glorious hope keeps us pressing on heavenwards. When we were first saved, we were called heavenwards in Christ Jesus. That's the direction we've been on ever since. And every day brings us nearer. We're called heavenwards in Christ, and heaven is where our destiny is. Now, obviously the wonder of heaven won't be everyone's experience. The scripture says in Hebrews 9, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So man is destined to die once and after that judgment. There's no after death, second chance or anything like that. We die once and judgment. So for those who have not believed in him, there's the indescribably awful prospect of judgment in the presence of a holy God. Dying is not a pleasant experience for everyone. The scripture says, when the great day of his wrath has come, who can stand? Revelation 6, 17. So there's no hint in scripture of any kind of second post-death chance. No, it's appointed unto man once to die. Nor is there any suggestion of salvation being found anywhere other than in Christ Jesus. So, yeah, we, we don't fear death. We look forward to falling asleep and being with the Lord. But we do fear death for other people. And Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade people. And the thought of the possibility of people dying outside of Christ surely must motivate us to win people at all costs, bring them to faith in Christ. We long personally to come before him. More than that, I don't know about you, my longing is to not only come before him, but to bring a whole crowd with me. But there will be those who are there before the Lord somehow because of something I've said or something I've done. Because otherwise the prospect for people doesn't bear thinking about. So for us it's good news. But for us also it's incentive. It's incentive that we want to see the Lord and we want to hear him say well done. But it's incentive that we want to bring people with us and we want to see people saved. I'm just going to pray. I think we will sing. And then if there are questions, we'll handle those after that. But I'm just going to pray. Father, we've spoken about so many things that are so crucial. But Father, I pray about this assumption that we don't fear death. And I pray for people here who do fear it. I pray for people here who can't say they're looking forward to being with you. Lord, I ask you, Holy Spirit, will you take the scriptures that we've looked at? Will you take the truth that we've seen? And I pray change our worldview. I ask you, O oh God, that for each of us there is a, an eager expectation and a, almost an impatience, as Paul seemed to have, that to be absent from the body and present with the Lord was what gripped him. Lord, we want to see you. Lord, we want to see your face, Lord Jesus. We want to see those eyes looking at us, and we want to see your welcome. 
and we want to worship you forever. Lord, I pray for all of us, remove all those negative associations and cause us to be thrilled at the prospect of being with you. Lord, give us, therefore, a testimony to other people. And Lord, stir us with a zeal to win people, to come before you at last with others who we bring along. Lord, we pray for it. In Jesus' name, amen.
questions. All right. <laughs> so I'm just laughing at the one that I've, uh, I've just got, which says, what about the Ethiopian penguins? <laughs> <laughs> you fool. <laughs> I didn't text it. <laughs> Um, quite a few questions um, about how do we respond when unbelievers close to us die or how do we mourn or grieve them and um, tied in with that one question was about how do we explain to, to our children uh, when an unbeliever has died, what do we say to them? I think it's important um I think we're, we're, when an unbeliever dies, if maybe we're um, with the relatives of someone who, uh, an unbeliever who's died, that we don't say things out of sentiment or good intentions that are actually not true. And uh, we will mourn with those who mourn. That is always an appropriate thing to do. But, and for example, I've, I've conducted funerals um, for unbelievers, and that's a challenge. What are you going to say? And you're not going to say things that are not true. You're not going to um, say things about where the one who has died has gone. You don't even refer to that. What you do aim to do is to bring the comfort of a God who loves those who, uh, the comfort of God, uh, of a God who loves those who are living, and you bring that comfort to them. So that's, I would, I would not say anything, and it's quite inappropriate, I'd have thought. Um, you certainly wouldn't say, well, of course you do realize I've gone to hell. I mean, Obviously, I'm not going to say anything about that, but to bring the love of God um, to those who are mourning. And it can be an opportunity uh, to share the gospel with the living and to bring the love of God so that they are comforted uh, while they're mourning. So certainly that uh, it, it's the positive word of God's love for those who are left rather than anything about those who have gone. Um, that would be, that has been uh, what I have done. In terms of explaining it to a child, um, again, I think we need to be careful uh, to only say things that are true. Um, and obviously, if, so, if it's an unbeliever, you're not going to tell your child that they've gone to be with Jesus, because that, as far as you know, is not true. Although, None of us can know what happens at the end for anyone. Anyone can, unbeknown to us, have turned to Christ in their last moments and believed him, and we don't know about it. So we can't say either way. Um, but it, we just have to say to a child, really what applies to them, that life will come to an end, uh, and we believe to go to be with Jesus. So again, we say something positive, something that can, can already give them a perspective on life running its term, what happens, we fall asleep and we're forever with the Lord. So I, I'd want to explain to a child something that's relevant to them rather than say anything uh, about um, people who have died, about whose ultimate fate we don't know anything positive. I don't know if that helps. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, someone has asked, um, can one be saved at the moment of, of death? which I guess you've just answered. Um, someone else has just texted actually saying, what is the situation about regarding a Christian who commits suicide? Would they be saved? 
And obviously, I can't say, <laughs> because that rests with God. Um, we can speculate, and speculation is never a good thing, um, because our only grounds for making any confident statement is to say, the Bible says, and the Bible doesn't say on that matter, and therefore, I'm not going to speculate. If I were to speculate, <laughs> then for a Christian, I firmly believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I cannot believe, therefore, that anything can snatch us out of the Father's hand because the Scripture says nothing can. Uh, the Scripture does also tell us that for all of us we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it says there can be reward and there can be loss. So my, my guess is that for anyone who in, in extreme circumstances ends their own life, they're with the Lord, I would guess. But there's an answer they have to give. And they're with the Lord, but I would imagine lost. But the Bible doesn't say. I can only go on what the Bible does say. And what the Bible does say is that nothing is to snatch us out of his hand. And I believe that. Um, I believe nothing will ever separate us from God's love. And one has to say, obviously, people can take their own life when they are profoundly depressed, uh, when they're just at the end. And who are we to make any judgment about people who are in that extreme situation? Um, yeah, I would not want to go beyond that, really. Okay. Um, someone else has asked, is there hope in salvation for a baby who died not having made a conscious decision to accept Christ as their saviour? I kind of guessed that question was going to come <laughs> because it is, uh, yeah, it is a, a matter of concern. Again, I'm not just ducking the thing, but the Bible doesn't say. And so what happens is that people then project an answer from other things and logic can be our friend and logic can also lead us along the wrong path when we don't know all the factors. And um, I think one, I think on that, I am, I have to be an agnostic. I do not know because the Bible doesn't say what happens to those who die in infancy. Um, some would say, but God's a God of love, and therefore, others would say, but all have sinned, and therefore, I think, yeah, you can draw conclusions either way, and what we all have to say is, we don't know. And again, my concern for parents who have lost a child is to minister the comfort of God, what we do know to the parents, that God loves them, God is with them, is an ever-present help in trouble and we want to minister to the parents without speculating and without making statements that we say to comfort but actually they might not be true and I don't think things that are untrue ultimately bring any comfort so I would rather speak about what I do know Is euthanasia wrong? Yes <laughs> Did you want more than that? Uh, to take a life cannot surely be justified 
apart from in a war situation where some would therefore argue that uh, there is such a thing as a just war and so on. But generally, the command is that we do not kill and the sanctity of life is stressed again and again in, in Scripture that those who take a life should lose their life. Um, so don't now ask me, do I believe in capital punishment? We're not talking about that. Um, but to therefore prematurely end someone's life, no one has got the right to do that. I cannot see how anyone's got the right to do that. Uh, we can assist someone and you know, make people comfortable and so on as palliative care, but to actually take it upon oneself to end someone's life. Now, obviously, if someone is being kept alive artificially, then the issue becomes somewhat different. But to, to actually say, you know, someone's got a, a wasting disease, uh, something that's going to just get progressively worse, and they think, I, I can't cope with this, so I'm dignified, I think I will die now. No, that, that's just not on. We don't have the right to do that. A, a couple of questions kind of linked together. Um, one was an interesting one. Are we less likely to die as a Christian, it said, first of all, and I actually engaged in a bit of a text conversation with the person who said it and said, do you mean in, in terms of um, sort of accidental death? And they said, well, yeah, sort of angelic intervention and things like that. The other one, on a similar lines, should we ever pray for resurrection um, of the dead as they did in the New Testament? That second question, I had wondered whether to weave that into what I was doing and then didn't, so uh, I might as well have done. Um, the first part, God gives his angels responsibility to look after us. A promise that many people believe and plead when I'm giving them a lift anywhere. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> Seriously, he does. We, there, are, there are, there's angelic protection. The Bible says that. But that's not the same as saying that we will inevitably have a long life because that isn't the case. And there's, there is a mystery in God's providence. And so uh, you get outstanding saints who die prematurely within the New Frontiers family of churches, just the other year, uh, in one week, we lost Simon Pettit, who led the whole work in, in, in Africa, and Frank Gamble, a, a wonderful saint, who, uh, in spite of the uh, crippling condition he was in, had planted churches and was so zealous for God. God takes people, and there's a mystery in it. Our days are numbered by God. He's numbered them. And none of us can say how long he has allotted us on this earth uh, when it is our time to go. We will go when it's time to go. Uh, so we can't all guarantee that we'll live long into our 80s, 90s, get the Queen's telegram, and it'd be the king then, wouldn't it? But anyway, uh, we, can't, we can't reckon on that. We don't know. Uh, our days are numbered by God. Um, the second thing, should we pray for the dead to be raised... Well, it's in the Bible. Um, for myself, I think if I have just fallen asleep and I've woken and there's Jesus, then suddenly I feel a tug and I get, 
I'd be so annoyed. <laughs> so, don't do it, anyone, okay? <laughs> As if you would. Um, so, from my point of view, I wouldn't really want that. Um, but, I mean, I mean, seriously, I wouldn't. Um, I think. But, uh, in terms of the dead being raised, there is, it's, it's there in the scripture and it is a promise um, that, that we are moving in the kingdom of God. God is king and as we've seen, he's king over death. And so there will be situations, of that I actually am convinced, that there will be situations when we witness a death and everything in us tells us this is not God's time. This is premature. And we will see the dead raised. I believe that. So I do believe that it is not just as a random thing, but there will be, there'll be times when God gives faith to that. And we will see that. If it's me, <laughs> let me go. Um, two questions about um, what happens to our spirit when we die. One, one says, when death occurs, does the spirit leave the body immediately or linger a while? And I guess linked with that, someone else has said, can we believe in ghosts, strokes, spirits of those departed who didn't believe to linger to do the work of the devil, just as God has angels to do good? Again, as I've said in answer to other questions, um, the only valid kind of answer I can give to any question is where the Bible says something. So uh, in everything, it's got to be, well, what does the Bible say? Um, this, what Paul says about absent from the body, present with the Lord, would seem to indicate something immediate. Uh, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment again would seem to indicate something immediate. And the sense of disembodied spirits lingering uh, doesn't seem to me to be a biblical concept. Um, I don't know if this is relevant or not, but there was uh, back in, in Odium, there was um, a young lad uh, who had a wasting disease and we watched him deteriorate tragically. Um, he was saved and baptized in water shortly before the deterioration really set in. And uh, that was wonderful. Um, it was really almost within days of his baptism that things started to really get serious. And his family prayed and prayed for him. We prayed and prayed for him. Um, but the time came when things were bad. And I had a phone call. Um, from his father to say that he had just died. And um, I immediately went round to the house, um, and it was within you know, minutes of his death, because we lived in a small village, you could get anywhere fast. And uh, it was... Uh, don't build a doctrine on this, I'm just telling you what happened. Um, he was lying in their living room. The, the father... Uh, well, the parents were there with another guy from the church, and apparently, as 
as his life ebbed away, they were praying and praying, and, and he was still there and praying and praying. Then is when they stopped praying that he went. Well, the strange thing was, uh, right next to the living room was their kitchen. And in the kitchen, there was a strange perfume. And it, please don't build a doctrine on this, okay? I'm just telling you, there was this strange perfume. And I kind of joked, because I suppose I do tend to joke at the most inappropriate moments, but I said, I think the angels were waiting here for you two to shut up. <laughs> there was this strange sense of this aroma. It was beautiful. Didn't last long, but it was there. And no, my my quip about angels waiting—I'm sure that was not true. But this this lad had gone. And I'm sure he, he wasn't there anymore. But what remained was a this incredible perfume. What that meant, I do not know. Um, but uh, I don't believe that we hover around. Uh, I certainly don't believe that unbelievers spirits are hovering around to trouble people. I think the devil, I referred to his tool bag earlier, and I think he's got all sorts of things in that, including uh, delusions about ghosts and so on. There are demonic pre pre presences around, of course there are. Um, and there can be demonic presences associated with buildings and so on. And uh, I've been involved sometimes in commanding those things to go and places being free. So these things happen, but they're not people. They're Absent from the body, present with the Lord, or judgment, one or the other. But you don't stay here to, to torment other people. Two, sim answer. Yeah. Two similar questions. Um, one bit more specific. If you accepted God and became a Christian when you're younger and then go away from God and become gay or lesbian, do you still go to heaven? A similar one. Hebrews 6.4 talks about falling away and it being impossible to be brought back to repentance. Does this mean you can lose your salvation? Um, I would slightly plead that we're getting a bit further away from the subject of death and onto the subject yeah. of, of perseverance and can you lose your salvation. Um, can we keep the questions on the subject? Otherwise, we could kind of go anywhere. Um, but since those questions are asked, If someone is genuinely saved and they go away from the Lord, whatever they get into, if they're genuinely saved, they're genuinely saved. However, the scripture also says that if we're born of God, we will not continue to sin. In other words, we will not persist in sin because uh, you know, let's talk about a, a determined continuing in something. God's seed is in us. We cannot. So if someone does willingly get in to something that the Bible expressly forbids and they persist in it, one has to say, were they saved? Was this really a work of God? How could they be doing this? So, if we're genuinely saved, nothing will snatch us out of his hand and we will be with the Lord. However, uh, there are warnings and in Hebrews there are warnings. So, uh, I would take those warnings as uh, warnings for people who have a kind of slick, well, once saved, always saved. And you know, I've had people say to me who I've been there to warn them about a course of action they're about to take, some relationship they're about to get into when they're already married with someone else and they've got kids. And I said, what about your family? You, you know what the Bible says about 
if you offend one of these little ones. I said, I've warned them. And they say, I have a once saved, always saved. And I said, don't you believe it? Because I don't think you can believe it in those circumstances. So I would say in Hebrews there are warnings because people are about to turn back from Christ. In Romans 8, there are encouragements that nothing can separate us from the love of God because there are people who are in Rome when Nero is the emperor and there is suffering. In those circumstances, we need to know, no, God's not going to let go. Nothing can separate us from his love. I think different words to different people. Can you lose your salvation? I'd say, don't try and find out. And that's not just a glib, you know, I'm not being casual. I'd say, there are warnings, but we want to press on with God. And for others, well, we can't ever know who is saved and who isn't. So it's a very difficult one to answer. And just to follow up one for the, from the praying for people to be raised from the dead. I think I've got this right. Um, if you pray for people to be raised from the dead, then do people get a second chance if they're not a Christian? So they're not saved, they die, you pray for them, they're raised from the dead, then they can get saved. Well, sure. If, if they have been raised from the dead, they're now alive. And as long as you're alive, you can get saved. And uh, I'd have thought it'd be a pretty good start to hearing the gospel, really. <laughs> <laughs> nice bit of pre-evangelism, that is. <laughs> cool. uh, apart from one asking how old you were, um, that's... <laughs> said they said that I wasn't going to ask. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> that's all the questions I've got. That's all the questions. And I was about to say, it is just after half nine, so I was going to stop it anyway. Obviously, if other questions arise at any time, obviously you, you can always ask. But uh, it's been good to, to be able to have that feedback. Um, I think often when we get into discussion about things, we can often lose the central thing. So I'd say, don't lose the central thing of our hope, what God has prepared for us what we are surely heading for and what we can look forward to and face uh, with joy rather than with fear. Drive carefully.